The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. We are entering into a season of glory in college basketball. I don't know if anybody here likes March Madness. A couple of you, all right? I'm sure some of you can imagine a coach at the beginning of the season for baseball, football, basketball, that there is a coach somewhere in this country who gathers around with professional or collegiate athletes, and he sits them down and he says, gentlemen, this is a basketball. Gentlemen, this is a football. Gentlemen, this is a baseball. And to those who don't know the Vince Lombardi quote on this, you may be thinking, why would they be saying this is a ball? Clearly they know what that is. Because what that coach is trying to do is to remind those players that as complex as the sport can become, as much as that you want to get excited about special plays and this, that, and the other, we have to understand the essence of what this is all about to put this ball in that hoop. And we do that with simple fundamentals. BBC, Romans 12 is the essence and the basis of Christianity. What Paul does for us is what Jesus does in Matthew 22. He says, all of the law and the prophets can be summarized. All 613 of what is said covering more than a thousand years of written and recorded history and prophecy can all be distilled down into love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, what is the essence of the Christian life? What is it that we, as those saved and redeemed, are to be about? Love. Open with me to Romans 12 if you're not already there. Our text will be verses 9 through 13, and we will look today and be encouraged, be exhorted, and be challenged at the nature and the practice of supernatural love in the church. I'm going to read from the ESV, and then I'm going to project the Legacy Standard Bible translation on the screen because I think it captures something essential about the grammar for us to understand how this fits together in God's mind. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. What may seem like a random assortment of independent commands is actually a group of descriptions, a means by which love supremely will be practiced. Let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, and persevering or pursuing hospitality. Everything modifies love. Love is the supreme command. It is the supreme means and way of our life. Now, our first and initial response to this list may be one of burden. And the first thing that may be in your heart is, I can't do that. To which God says, I know. (laughs) Beloved, God knows that we need forgiving and transforming and empowering grace to accomplish the things that he calls us to. Do you think that he will deliver what we need to accomplish what he desires? Yes and amen. And this is why the entire chapter of Romans is that the essence of, 
of what Christianity is. The book of Romans as a whole reveals the saving and the judging righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 11 reveal or uncover or shine light onto what God has declared and done for the sake of his glory and for the sake of mankind. Chapters 1 to 8 specifically reveal God's righteous judgment, his justification, his sanctification, and his future glory of those who are in Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 then vindicate God's justice and righteousness for those who would question whether his promises are actually unbreakable or if he is unjust because of how he relates to Israel and the Gentiles. And then we come to chapter 12 through 16 where righteousness is applied. The Christian, forgiven, transformed, empowered, now responds. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 12. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by or through the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So when the original audience heard these calls to a sacrificial and transformed life, when they were confronted with this list of commands of how to love, they had been soaked in a scene of forgiving and empowering grace for 11 chapters. And their response was, in Christ, I can. In Christ, I will. In Christ, I will delight. Is the call and the command to love a delight or is it a burden? Our response will clarify whether we are abiding in the vine or whether we are seeking to live on our own. So, what are these mercies? by which and through we are to live this sacrificial and worshipful life, by which the Christian joyfully loves in our text. Sit back and enjoy. In chapter 2, verse 4, God has been patient with us in our rebellion, whose kindness has led us to repentance. In chapter 3, although none is righteous and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he has justified the ungodly through grace as a gift for the redemption of Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 7, our lawless deeds are forgiven. In 4, 8, righteousness is credited to us. In 5, 1, we have been justified by faith and have been given the peace of God. Yes, but we now have peace with God. No longer enemies, but children of God. In verse 5, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. In 6, we are set free from sin and are now slaves to Christ, the best and perfect master. In seven, we are released from the law. In eight, one, there is now no condemnation. In eight, 11, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. We now live by that spirit and can put the deeds of the flesh to death. In eight, 16, that spirit bears witness that we are children of God. And if children heirs with Christ, the spirit helps us in our weakness and even helps us pray and God will carry us from justification through glorification, Jesus interceding constantly for us. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. And so in Romans 9, 16, it says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is what we have. Amen? We have seen and we have received by faith and now the Christian responds. By and through these mercies, I offer my body as a living sacrifice. My mind is transformed by your word ongoing and continually. In verse three through verse eight of chapter 12, we see Paul speak to a particular response. These are our gifts. Even the gifts God has given to us individually. But those are still limited by the measure of faith you see in verse 2 and 3, the measure of faith that we have. And they're also limited by circumstances. We can't practice our gifts all the time and everywhere. But that is the shift that happens in verse 9 because that which is restricted by faith and circumstance now becomes an open 
universal, full-time, full-throttle practice of supernatural love in the church. There are no limits. Look with me at these present tense and intense words. Hating, clinging, devoted, not lagging, fervent, rejoicing, constant, contributing, seeking. It doesn't end. This is not part-time. It's full-time. The primary focus here is amongst believers. Verse 10, you see it? One another, one another. Look at verse 13. Among the saints, this is a love that is primarily focused in the church. Will it spill over to your unbelieving families and neighbors? Yes. But how many of us as Christians have focused our love out there and failed to love in here because this is actually harder because we keep seeing each other in our mess over and over again. How many of you have children who just can't seem to get along with one another but are great friends with people outside of the home? The disagreements come over toothpaste, don't they? (laughs) Somebody laughed because that's what their marriage is about. No, I did mine too. It is so essential to understand that Romans 12 through 16 cannot be accomplished. It dare not be accomplished or attempted without chapters 1 through 11. And if you are here today and you hear this and you say, yeah, 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 I I can do that. God says, no, you can't. No, you can't. I died because you can't. I died for you because the guilt was so great. If you're here today thinking that you can please God with your works, you cannot. If you're here today thinking that you have the power to accomplish this, you can't. The helper has been given to us so that we could accomplish greater works than were even accomplished by Christ and his earthly ministry because they will be multitudinal and cover the globe in the power of God. This is the Christian life, isn't it? What God has done and what we do in response. And what is it that we do? We love. Let's look at the nature of this love in the church. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. I'm sure that we are all familiar that the term love means different things. And sometimes in English we use maybe facial expressions or the tone of our voice to clarify this. We might say, hey, I love you, or I love you. (laughs) Don't say that to the wrong person that way. Or you might say, hey, love you, bro. Or, although you hate and despise me, I will love you nonetheless. Same word. Same word. In Greek, they didn't rely just on these facial expressions and modifications. They actually had different words. Now, with any word, the context is the best determinant of meaning. But in general, we can understand at the time the New Testament was written, there were four options to choose from to describe love. The word eros, we get this idea of erotic or marital love. It's a word that's never used in the New Testament because it was actually so fouled up in this culture that the New Testament writers said, we shouldn't even apply this to marriage. But that's the sense. We have phileo, this brotherly love. And this ranges from our affection and friendship to greeting and hospitality. Then there's storge, which is a familial love that emphasizes our belonging between a child and a parent. It's a a positional love. And then we have agape, an unselfish, self-giving, willful devotion. And that's the word right here in verse 9. Agape was actually used pretty minimalistically in the Greek literature outside of the Bible. And that's because love, particularly from a God, was most often understood as an arbitrary and remarkably conditional interaction. This word was therefore common in the New Testament to speak of our God, but uncommon outside of it. You can think about the covenantal commitment of God to Israel based on his promises to love them in spite of who they were in their failings, idolatries, and sins. And so it is so unique to him, isn't it? For 11 chapters, Paul has poured over the Romans the grace and the patience of God and a grace that does not sacrifice God's justice. That's so key. For in the cross, God is both the just and the justifier. But for us to understand more about agape, 
Let's turn to Romans 5, where Paul begins to build and what he draws from as he talks about the love that we are to have in the church. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul is speaking and celebrating about the peace that we have with God and what God is doing and transforming us and how sufferings even produce character and character hope. Verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What do we learn about the nature of God? These are the things to write down. Love originates in God. We read it earlier. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's the word agape. This is a love that begins, originates, has existed eternally within the nature of God. Love is expressed in sacrificial action. And love moves from God to us through the Holy Spirit. Why is this so correcting? Why is this so helpful? Love is not primarily an emotion. That's what we think it is. That's what we're told it is, isn't it? Love is not what we define it to be. And love does not find its origin within us. And to the younger generations here, this is so, so important to understand. What is claimed as authenticity of love is not whether about you feel like loving someone. Uh, I, I just don't want to be, you know, disingenuous, you know, because I really don't love them. So I got to wait till that stirs up and then maybe I will. It isn't about you. Love is the subject of this sentence, not you. The authenticity of love is whether or not you have the true and genuine oracle of God in your life that you can then give that away. One commentator describes biblical agape love is the love of choice, the love of serving with humility, the highest kind of love, the noblest kind of devotion, a love of the will, and here, is not motivated by superficial appearance, emotional attraction, or sentimental relationship, but by generosity and grace. John MacArthur summarizes this so well. He says, agape love centers on the needs and the welfare of those loved and will pay whatever personal price to meet those needs and foster that welfare. The love we practice in the church, therefore, is rightly understood as supernatural. Get it? Because it comes from God. It is his love. It does not originate in us. It is not our emotional attraction or warm feelings from one another. The nature of love simply then is this. It is an attribute of God, of willful devotion, sacrificially given, not based on the value of the receiver, but on the goodness of the giver. And verse 9, as we look back there, says, let this Love be without hypocrisy. Your translation may say, be genuine. It's actually framed as a negative, to be without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a word that refers to the masks that Greek actors would wear in theater. At this point in time in history, the audience was often far removed from the stage and they didn't have high-definition cameras to see those little nuances of facial expression. So when an actor was trying to communicate what they were in that scene, they would put on a mask, a very expressive and large one, so the people in the back row could say, oh, he's happy. Oh, he's angry, right? What is it about this command? How can agape love be hypocritical? How can it be masked? Simply put, by us covering over what God's love is. God's love can become hypocritical if we put on a sour-faced mask to that which is freely given. You see, God's love is already genuine. It is already good. 
It is already active. It is already self-sacrificing. And that which has been poured in to you and to me through the Spirit of God. And so then the call to God is simple. Let it be. Let it come into you and let it come out of you. Give away what has been given to you in the way that it came to you. We read earlier and we know the positive way that this can be phrased. As I have loved you, so you love another. Paul is giving us just another facet of a way to understand this. What he's saying is do not take God's attribute and mask it with your own variable emotions. Do not take what is received from God and try to generate it on your own. Do not take what is active and shared and covered over with passivity and restriction. God's love is 24-7, 365. Don't put a sign on it that says, we're closed till tomorrow. We are to take what we have received from God as generous love and not to be stingy with it. And to take that which is sacrificially given to the undeserved and not turn it into a this for that. The fight is to keep love, to keep the love that God has given to us in the way that it is, full-time, full-throttle, sacrificial action. This is the nature of sacrificial love. And now we will turn to briefly cover the 12 practices of supernatural love. How is love protected from hypocrisy? How is love kept genuine? First, the practices of the mind. Look back with me. Love abhors evil. Abhor is a word that means hate. It's a present tense word. It's an ongoing practice. It's, it's a posture of our mind. It's intensified hate, reflexive and willful repulsion. I want you to imagine being in a dark room and cuddling up with your favorite teddy bear or blanket or power tool, if this analogy fails you. And someone turns on the light and you look down and you realize that you're actually hugging a five-pound tarantula spider. What is your reaction? Intense, willful repulsion. In Genesis 39, Joseph was pursued by Potiphar's wife for an adulterous affair. In verse 12, it says, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left the garment in her hand and he fled and got out of the house. In a similar discussion, Solomon shares with his son about adultery in Proverbs 7. Can a man carry fire next to his clothes and not get burned? The implicit answer is no. And we are to reflexively throw that fire and that clothing off. Psalm 103, 9 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Is that our posture? Not to just be aware of evil, not to just avoid it, but to persistently and continually hate it with a repulsing revulsion. What are these things of evil that we should be repulsed by? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. There may be common things that are coming to your mind, but it's the subtle things that we often give a pass to that can so easily entangle. We may look first at, at verse 29, having been filled with all kinds of unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. Yeah, that's a good place to start. But where do all of these sins begin? Look back in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. Do we have a repulsive reaction to ingratitude in our own hearts? When we minimize and make God small and we recognize that, do we hate it? Because what is downstream is verse 29. Greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, hating God, violence, arrogance, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Do we have a repulsive reaction to these things in our life and in our midst? We must, 
if we want a love that is righteous. But Paul moves us not merely from rejecting these things, but to what? Verse 9, cling to what is good. Turn away and cling. The word here means to glue to an object. Jesus in Luke 10 uses this word when he says, the dust that clings to your sandals, wipe it off of those who do not welcome you into the house. In Matthew 19, he talks about a wife and a husband who are cleaved, who are glued, and who are united together. This is the picture of rejecting evil and gluing ourselves to that which is good. Which bears the question, what is good? What is good? Do we define it? Do you define it? Psalm 119.68 says this of God, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Like love, goodness is an attribute of God. And here is not focused on being good looking, but being essentially or intrinsically good and of benefit to others. Three examples of God's goodness are his grace, which is his goodness for the undeserving. His mercy, which is his goodness for the needy. His patience, which is his goodness for resistors. Pastor Paul Shirley would say, this is so good, goodness is the attribute of God that allows man to benefit from the nature of God. I'll say that again. Goodness is the attribute of God that allows man to benefit from the nature of God in grace and mercy and patience. And that is what we cling to. We will be informed of evil and good how? By the word of God that transforms our mind, that was conformed to this world, that was conformed to ourself, and now is being transformed into the likeness of God. We are not merely to know these things, but as Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, worthy of praise, what are we to do? Daydream about that stuff. Think over and over about that stuff. How many times have we daydreamed about how good we want to look? We've daydreamed about that vacation we're going to have. You're like, how many times can you imagine that beach? Oh, 10 more times today. How many times, or do we get tired of rolling over in our head God's goodness, God's nature, God's deeds? Practically speaking, in your conversation with other believers, share your gratitude about God rather than remaining silent. Talk about his majesty and why he is worthy of praise and not just about yourself. And your thoughts about Christians repulsively reject the temptation for slander and gossip and cling to assuming the best and considering how to build them up. Meditate on how God expresses his judgment for sin and mercy and grace and patience. Why? Because as believers, we're going to have to navigate how to do that for one another. We are going to have to patiently, mercifully go after one another when we're in sin. And we're going to have to figure out how to confront one another without being harsh. And when someone has fallen down, Will grace be a primary motivator? Study these things. As we look back at verse 10, we look now at the practices of supernatural love in our relationships. Verse 10 says, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. The ESV uses the word love for devoted, so it sounds like this, love one another with brotherly love. The repetitiveness is intentional. The devoted term here is actually a combination of two words. It's not agape. Agape is the grand banner by which something else fits under it. Storge, as we mentioned earlier, is this family devotion based on a bond of commitment, and philo is a friend affection. And what Paul does is the only time in the New Testament is he combines the two, these two words into a, to a, to a complex idea. He says, I want you to have a family commitment and an enjoyable connection to each other. That's what the word devoted means. To this, he adds repetitive emphasis. You see it? He says, one another, and in brotherly love. So quite poetically, this is what it sounds like. In brotherly affection, one another, family friendly. What is he trying to get at? I don't want you to just love each other because you've been declared to be the body of Christ. I want you to like each other. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? There are people that you know, and like, yeah, yeah, I love them, but I don't know them well enough to even like them. 
how can hypocrisy cover over and limit and distort this? If you have a welcoming interest to give and take only with those in this church who look and talk and act and enjoy the same things as you do, that is a hypocritical love. Practically speaking, questions for us to consider. Does your genuine affection cut across generations? Educational backgrounds, temptation patterns, intellectual aptitude, ethnicity, personality. Do you have a family-friendly affection and desire for anyone that you bump into in the hallway? Can anyone in this church find a seat at your dinner table? The holy love of God is not dissuaded or diverted from those who do not give back And it does not stop at mere commitment. It expresses itself in a way, catch this, that Jesus calls us not merely servants, but what? Friends. Are we merely fellow servants, BBC, or are we friends? You may say to yourself, Jeff, (laughs) that's too hard. Romans 12.1, according to and through and by the mercies of God, Normal and worldly standards of relationships will not hinder our family-friendly love. We are in Christ. This affectionate commitment is also propelled by the very next practice. Verse 10, giving preference to one another in honor. Outdo one another in showing honor is, is how the ESV renders it. And I think this is better because it's not passive. The word here is to lead by example, not from the rear, not from the side, but getting out in front. You could say that this is a good example of good and godly competition. Planning and considering how to be the initiator, to be the leader, and going first to show and give honor to somebody else. Outdo. Do more. Go first. What is this honor then that we are to show? Honor is what we offer as a means of valuing the worth of an item. Now think about why this needs to be a command. The Roman Roman Christians didn't do this. I sometimes don't do this. You don't do this. Why not? Because we act as if we have more value than others, don't we? We go on further to say, well, they're really not acting very honorable. The value in your brother and sister is that they are in Christ. They are in Christ. And you see, once you are in this realm, you are entering a mutually honoring sphere of existence. Consider the way that honor is reflected amongst the members of the Trinity. God says, this, this is my beloved son, and I am well pleased in him. Jesus says in John 10, no one will snatch the sheep out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he's greater than all. Greater than me. The Spirit glorifies the Son, and, the, and Jesus says this of the Spirit. It is to your benefit, disciples, that I go away, for the Spirit will not come until I go away, and you need him. That's the life inside the Trinity, and that's the life of honor that we've called, been called into. It's important to understand what Paul is saying here, or what he's not saying here, and he's not saying to flatter each other to be full of empty praise and lying in deceit. Outdoing is not about flattery. It's about valuing and considering others better than ourselves. Philippians 2.3, right? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Practically speaking, what is that? Is, just, is that just a mindset? What does that mean day to day? Greeting, calling, initiating phone calls and emails and being the first one to do so. The door of the church opens. Who's going to say hi first? Are you in competition with that person? If you're a quick processor or a teaching type, be quick to listen. Ask questions and take interest not in what you want to say, but what it is that they actually said. If you're a quiet, internalizing, slower process serving type of person, You might need to plan to ask questions. You might need to plan to encourage someone. But you're seeking to avoid standing flat-footed and silenced because you haven't prepared to honor them more than yourself. 
What a perfect transition this is into the next group of practices of supernatural love, which is our attitude. In summary, we are to be ready and active. Look at verse 11. Not lagging behind diligence, but being fervent in spirit. Not lagging is literally to drag your feet or to be slothful in the ESV. Diligence is a term about enthusiasm or eagerness. You can get a sense. It's don't be slow to be eager. Don't be slothful to be excited to love. And to clarify it, he says, be fervent in spirit, which means to be boiling up on the inside. Now, we hear that term and we may be thinking, oh, I know what it's like to be boiled up. I get boiled up when I'm upset. What Paul is saying here is, I want you to be internally fired up to be prepared to love somebody. I've coached my sons in various sports over the years. And I'm sure some of you could empathize with the fact that um, you might know the outcome of the game before it is even going to start. And it's not because you're a prophet. You're just observant. The boys drag their feet from the car to the bench, slowly put on their shoes. They shuffled around in the pregame drills. The team chants were half-hearted. And so what happened when the game started? Each of their swing was a half second too late, and they were two steps behind the fly ball that was hit to them. They weren't ready and eager to play. Proverbs 6 comes after us all. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Without any chief, she prepares her bread. How long will you lie there, oh sluggard? A little sleep, a little slumber, and poverty will come upon you like an armed man. Are we lazy in our eagerness and our readiness to love? Remember, this is an attitude. This is not being active in love. This is being eager in the mindset, ready to go. Jesus challenges the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.4, I have this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Loving action can be lost because an eagerness to love has cooled down. So the question is, is do we have a mediocre and passive posture toward those in the seats around us? Or are you eagerly ready and active in prayer? Are you reading your Bible for yourself, ready and looking for what you can give away to build up others? And when you see the caller ID on your phone light up with a name of somebody that you know from this church, does it sound like an announcer on the race? Runners, take your mark. Let's go. Are you eager to love? Number seven, supernatural love serves God. This eagerness, this boiling up serves the Lord. I came to Christ through a ministry called Young Life. I was at a camp for a week. It was an incredible and amazing experience where the gospel was preached with clarity and the experience could be seen as nothing less than incredible. To give you a picture of this, there would be volunteer staff while we were all sleeping who would go down to the beach volleyball courts and literally rake the sand so you would walk out as a high school student to see lines in this perfectly manicured sand. I, did we deserve that? No. But they were showing this is what the love of Christ does. That was the camp experience everywhere. How did they do that? With an 80% volunteer labor force. <laughs> By which for two months and two different summers, I gave myself to. And it was an absolutely amazing experience. We worked 14 or 15 hour days for six days straight. We had a half or three quarter day break. And then we did it all over again for a month. We didn't get paid. We actually had to pay to go do it. And the counsel that the leaders gave us during our training was repeated and was clear. If you, Jeff, make your primary focus one of serving those kids, they will disappoint you and you will burn out. The lack of gratitude, the lack of awareness that you even exist will kill you. You do everything for Christ. The kids are secondary. And that has stuck with me since here are the words that God gives to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 23. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external servants as those who merely please men, but with a sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for who? The Lord, rather than who? Men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of an inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So as we put verse 11 together, here's the picture. Genuine love is pictured as a runner at the starting line of a race, ready and stretched and prepared to take off. 
the heart is racing, the spirit is boiling over at the very opportunity to serve the Lord as a living sacrifice expressed for love to each other, needing nothing in return from the people because the reward comes from above. This is the attitude of love. So far, we've seen supernatural love that is practiced in our mind, in relationships, and in attitude. Paul now shifts to a genuine love practiced in adversity together. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, devoted to prayer. We may think that these actions are primarily about what we are to do individually as Christians. And trust me, that is true. We could go to many places throughout the scripture where the call is to rejoice and endure and pray. But the context here is communal. If you're already there, look with me at Romans 5. If not, quickly turn there. I want you to look at the pronouns that Paul uses to describe suffering and hope and perseverance and rejoicing. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction to faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope and the glory of God. Not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction brings about perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. The supernatural love of God that is genuine will produce a mutual and collective rejoicing and endurance and prayer with one another. We all know that trials are a testing ground for individuals, but they are also proving grounds for us collectively. Hear the words of Jesus. The world will know that you all are my disciples if you all love one another. So then, what are we to rejoice and be glad in? It's not our circumstances, but it's our hope. Hope is the certain and joyful expectation of a future event or reality. So what is it that you can bring to celebrate and to rejoice in hope with someone else in this body of Christ? Romans 5.2, in the hope of the coming glory of God. Romans 8.25, the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 5.5, 5, the completion of total righteousness in us. Oh, that day when free from sinning. You hear the song? Philippians 1.20, that our deeds done for Christ will not be shamed. Colossians 1.27, the future sharing in the glorious presence of Christ. Titus 1.2, hope of eternal life. Are these things written down in your Bible? So when that call comes in, you can say, brother, sister, Let's rejoice in the hope that we have. Here's what we have. To this hope, we add enduring and praying continually and persistently. Is God with you in your suffering, BBC? Is God with us in our affliction? How about one another? Are we in it together? Practically speaking, are these words frequent on your lips and expressed in your actions? I am in this with you. Not trite, not hypocritical, not lying and deceitful, but I'm in this with you. At the edge of the wilderness, Moses stood with Joshua, who was going to enter the far, the, the, that foreign land. It was a promised land, but it was full of enemies and giants. But Joshua wasn't going to go alone, right? And yet, after 40 years spent together in the desert, Moses says to him in Deuteronomy 31, I'm 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to go in and out. And the Lord has said, I will not cross this Jordan, but the Lord God will go with you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Beloved, be comforted that God is always with us. But let us be challenged that Moses endured with God's people until his very last day. At 120 years of age, four decades in the wilderness, he still said, 
I am with you until God takes me away. How long does love compel us to endure with one another? Will you stand with each other until your breath is taken from your lungs? Or is there an expiration date where you say, I don't think I can hang around anymore? For you ladies, who's still with Joni Erickson Tata? She has those names. They've never left. A trial that will not end until she dies. We're with you, Joni. We're with you. How is this rejoicing and this enduring even possible? How is it carried along? That's the command. Be constant in prayer. That's how. Prayer is the means by which these things are accomplished. Prayer is the means by which these things are accomplished. And there's so many things for us to pray. We pray for supplications and prayer requests. If you don't know the ACTS acronym, tremendously beneficial to you. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplications. Pray the scriptures, pray the psalms. There is so much by which we can pray and encourage one another. This is the practice of love that gives and gives and gives and gives. And finally, beloved, we now move to the practice of supernatural love in a time of need. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. As we hear the word contributing, you may first imagine in your mind a collective fund, a box, a pot, a warehouse, or anonymous givers providing resources to some cause or a country or to a person. Oh, we just need some contributions. Can you, can you call in and offer a contribution to us? That's not the word here. The word here is connected more so to the distinctly Christian concept of the shared life, not faceless donations. The shared life and not faceless donations. Koinonia is the word group. And the founding example is likely something that's familiar to, to you. Acts 2.42 be the word, the, the, the verse that you write down here. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the koinonia, the shared life. What did that look like? To the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common, selling possessions and distributing as they had need. An intersecting life of contribution and sharing. I'm sure you can imagine the only way that we can do this is not only to be generous, but to be transparent. Because we cannot provide for that which we do not know exists. The humble Christian who recognizes I am nothing without the grace of God is then freed to say, I made a bad decision, and now I'm behind. We haven't planned rightly. Difficulty happened, and my savings is not as much as I thought it was. The closing activity of supernatural love in the church is hospitality. Verse 12, pursuing or seeking to practice hospitality. The word hospitality is the love of strangers. And the word choice here is intense and it's important and we cannot miss it. First, it is essential for us to understand that this is not talking about the fellowship and social enjoyment of your closest friends at church. That's not what hospitality means. The primary context of this word and this practice was associated with travelers and sojourners and those needing temporary lodging. The guests would not have therefore necessarily been known and familiar to you. Hebrews 13.2 makes this more clear. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. Now, I know that you all are some special people in here, but I don't think any of you are an angel. Your mom may think you're one, but the implication of this idea is that you're having people over your house that you don't really fully know. Moreover, the priority is not presenting your home and life is being put together. It's not about folded laundry and a vacuum floor. It's not a present, about presenting you as a great host or cook. It's not even about an extravagant meal. It may be just peanut butter and jelly and juice. 
Because the priority is them, not how you appear. 1 Peter 4, 9 levels us, doesn't it? It adds this truly convicting phrase, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I'm too busy. I don't have enough food in the fridge. What are they going to think of my house? I'm not dressed. We haven't vacuumed. Who was it that ultimately welcomed Joseph and Mary into their home? We don't know, but God does. Who was it that welcomed the disciples into their home when Jesus sent them out two by two to spread the gospel? We don't know, but God does. Who is it that you will welcome into your home? What strangers will you love? I wish I could end, but you gotta give me one minute. Because practicing hospitality is not even the sense of this word. It says in the legacy to pursue or to seek hospitality. Look down at verse 13 again. It says, contributing to the needs of the saint, pursuing hospitality. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Persecution and pursuing hospitality is the same word. The word that is used in Matthew and Luke and Acts of a hunter chasing his game is our attitude for hospitality. Pursue to capture hospitality. The spirit-empowered love that God has given to you is not passive. It pursues. It seeks. It does not merely do so inside the bounds of your home. It's looking, how can I, either, how can I take my home to someone else? And this is what Paul says to Timothy about Onesiphorus, about his labor at home and abroad. Hear these words. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he refreshed me and was not ashamed by my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and he found me. And the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, are you prepared and praying and looking for the chance to bring new visitors and members and missionaries into your home? Do you have extra food prepped that's already in the freezer? Have you cultivated in your family a desire to be spontaneous when the needs arise? Do you look forward to loving strangers? Let us not limit or mask the genuine love of God. Brothers and sisters, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we have learned that he wants that love to be unmasked, unhindered, unrestricted in its practice in the church. So as we go, we carry, will we carry this love and distribute it from a bucket or through a hose? Will we walk slowly and carefully, attentive not to lose a drop, and frustrated and angry when someone bumps into us and causes us to spill it out, knowing that the person who bumps into us actually may be the one that needs the water? Or will we release the valve and let it loose? The love of God does not come to us in drip or in drop. It is full-time, full-throttled, God-empowered action. Let us give it away to others in the way that it comes to us. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.